0: This evening's reading is Ruth chapter 4, and can be found on page 224 of your church Bibles. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, "'Turn aside, friend.' sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it, And say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David.
1: Well, let me add my welcome to Peter's. My name is Robin. and the minister of Chammers, and uh, it's great to see you here uh, tonight. Please do stay afterwards, and we'll have tea and coffee and a chance to chat together. One bit of church family news, Gregor and Sarah Curry, who are often with us on Sunday nights. Uh, the very early hours of this morning um, had a little girl called Grace. Peter, who led the service, is the uncle, so we couldn't get him to announce that. So let me just pause and pray for them as a family. Father God, we thank you for the birth of little Grace. We're going to finish our service tonight off the back of Ruth 4 singing, I will glory in my Redeemer. And we pray that that little girl will come to glory in her namesake, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that for all the children that we have the privilege of shepherding along with their parents within this church family. Indeed, Lord, we pray more widely that in the hearts of youngsters in our country, you would sow seeds that will come to gospel fruitfulness in their lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we get into chapter 4, and uh, I'll navigate just really quickly when we come to the chapter for those of you who are joining us for the first time tonight, I want to say just a little bit about what the book of Ruth has to teach us about relationships or dating or marriage or that kind of stuff. Lots of you have asked over the series what are you going to say from Ruth about dating and relationships? Here's a note of caution from one of the Bible writers. This ought, he writes, to be obvious. Ruth has nothing to teach young people about dating. And then it goes on to suggest that any preacher who tries needs their head examined. Now, that does clip our wings, and rightly so. And yet, And that's perhaps the best commentary on the book of Ruth. And yet there are a number of preachers that I, like you, find benefit from listening to. The one I listen to most preached a whole sermon in a series of five on relationships from the book of Ruth. I want to just give it 10 minutes. And then when we come back to a series later in the term on this kind of stuff, I'll pick it up again in November. But really just to pave the way for that, why do I think that the book of Ruth has something to say? Not a lot, but not nothing. Something to say about relationships. I think what is persuasive for me is the context of the book. It is written in the days in which the judges ruled. And the days in which the judges ruled Were the worst days morally in the history of God's people, where people did what was right in their own eyes in every realm, not least the realm of relationships. And in this book, Boaz and Ruth in particular do what is right in God's eyes within the realm of relationships. I think the second reason I think it has something to say is because it is a beautiful picture of godly morality. And sometimes when you teach a Bible book, you miss hitting a nail like that on its head. It is a beautiful picture of godly morality worked out in flesh and blood believers. And the third reason that the book of Ruth has something to say to us about relationships is that at the heart of the book, there is a marriage. It is what's called a leveret marriage in Old Testament law, It is a marriage in order to continue the family line. But if you read the book of Ruth, if you study it, and conclude that there is not a love match between Boaz and Ruth, you're not reading the text of the book. They do fall in love, as well as preserving the line that leads ultimately to the birth of the king. So what can we say from the book of Ruth about relationships? Now, I've tried to pinpoint a number of principles, and they're only that. I think were you to conclude at the end of the 10 minutes on relationships that that was a bit contrived from the book of Ruth, you might well be right. So I'm not saying that these are definitive things. They're kind of things that the book of Ruth might lead us and lean us to that would be elaborated much more widely in Scripture. One of the principles in the book is the encouragement to put God first, to trust and obey. And applied to the whole realm of relationships, to put God first, to commit to God first, and therefore in some contexts to say no in a relationship realm is right, but hard. So when Ruth And Orpah stood at that crossroads in chapter one. And all Naomi's instincts and all Ruth and Orpah's instincts were to go back to Moab where she could find a wife. And Ruth, husband. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Where am I? And Ruth facing the other way had no prospects. I mean, there was no prospects that this Moabite woman would be able to marry because she couldn't marry a Jewish boy. And yet, Ruth put God first. Now, the clearest illustration of that, and I say this with all the tenderness of a pastor of a number of years now, is if you are a Christian, do not date or marry somebody who is not a Christian. The phone will just mean you'll never forget what I've just said. <laughs> Don't worry, sir. It's happened to me in a wedding. <laughs> and I was the minister. <laughs> it was on silent vibrate them. I mean, that's such a true biblical principle. And let me encourage you, those of you who are younger, now there are exceptions. And the book of Ruth, if it teaches us one thing, is that when we walk away from the Lord, he can bring us back. But usually, often, a decision like that leads to difficulties and complexities. Not always. Now, I think we can all appreciate that putting God first in that kind of context is not easy and yet is right. Principle number two, trust in God's providence. In chapter two, Ruth just happened to come into the field belonging to Boaz. Happenstance. She didn't go to that field or that field or that field. She happened to come into this field where her Redeemer was who was also to become her husband. Now, the way that providence works in real life is that she just happened to come into that field. There's no sort of, she just happened to come into that field. You don't walk into a context and meet someone, and suddenly you're struck that God's providence is at work. Except that it is. You don't feel God's providence. It's like Hebrew words. You can only read it backwards, often in the past but you've got to trust it in the presence. So the signature of providence in their lives is the signature of providence in yours. And how the two go together, trust and obey God's providence at work. Now, when you long to be married, and somebody like me as a minister says, trust and obey and trust in God's providence, it's hard. It's hard. But there are many in this room who are now married or who have accepted that God's call to them, his best for them as a life of singleness, would agree that the best thing they did was to trust and to obey and to hold on to God's perfect providence for their life. Principle number three, Think of Ruth and Boaz. Value the attraction of godliness higher than anything else that attracts you to that person. Again, that sounds like pie in the sky. And I'm not saying there does not need to be a spark. Yes, there does. But there needs to be the attraction of to godliness. Now here am I going to embarrass my wife. I wrote this about her in a book, so it must be true. It must be true. Quote, Sally and I have been married for 17 years, now 19, nearly 20. We will soon be getting to significant anniversaries. There were many things that attracted me to Sally. I think, I, I don't believe I wrote this. She's an excellent cook and a great encourager. Those of you who are at the welcome lunch today will agree. I also didn't write, but would have liked to write, there was a spark. I didn't write that. More than anything else, it was her purity and her godliness that attracts to me. And what attracts me to her still is her purity and godliness. And, and, and I think that was absolutely true. You know, as a, as a weak flesh-and-blood man, I felt this woman will raise the bar for me. And so she has. The impact of godliness in a relationship is a wonderful and a powerful thing. Principle number four, be prepared to take the initiative. All that stuff in chapter three. Now, it's not a pattern, this Ruth going and lying down on the threshing floor. What we did with that last week, though, is we took out all the nonsense, all the kind of sensational stuff. It was a cultural custom of the time we can understand, but there's nothing ungodly about it. There's nothing scheming about it. I think behind it is the principle take the initiative. Be prepared to take the initiative. I think there is some truth in that, that there is no such person in this world who is perfect. Often, if I am out walking, uh, I'll take—I'll meet somebody, often a, a, a young guy or an older guy, and we'll talk together and Often the discussion is about relationships, and I'll very often say to them, just ask her, were I meeting a woman? I would not say just ask him, but just don't put the relationship on a pedestal that is impossible to reach. Just ask her. The answer might be no. Write her a letter, make your intentions clear. Protect her by doing what is right. Endless hinting is unhelpful in the end. Very occasionally when walking the dog, it's not just ask her, it's just get on and ask her. Very occasionally, but that's not very godly. You know, two Christians exploring the rightness of a relationship. Just ask in a godly, gracious way. Careful, protecting, way. Principle number five, wait. Wait. I suggested when I preached this on Ireland that somebody should write a book called The Theology of Waiting. And of course people have, and they emailed me the titles or texted them. <laughs> the Theology of Waiting. Waiting. Waiting in our lives in bigger scales. Waiting for the response. Give the relationship time. Wait to get married. Sometimes that is right. Wait till you're married to have sex. That is always right. Notice the order. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her after they were married, the Lord enabled her to conceive Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and then they became one flesh. Now, that is something that in our culture today is just crazy. But of the many gifts that you give or receive on a wedding day, the most intimate expression of the physical union between a man and a woman... What a gift that is to give on a wedding day. Now, let me say there, remember Ruth chapter 1. None of us in this room have not committed sexual sin as well as any other sin. So, don't feel that if that particular application is not true for you, that in some way God misses out the removal of that history or guilt or whatever it is in your mind by his grace. He doesn't. Principle number six, take marriage vows seriously. Boaz and Ruth are married. Chapter four, their marriage is surrounded by witnesses. Verse nine, Boaz announced to the elders today you are witnesses. When Rog was ordained here a few weeks ago, it was a very solemn occasion. I was going to say at the start of this talk, it was great watching you sing the last song. I get that privilege watching you. I was saying that to you two earlier. It's a great thing to watch people sing. And when I watched Roger taking these ordination promises, there were bits where he was really sobered by them. And the people who were most sobered in that room that night were all the minister standing here. Marriage vows are no less serious. I don't ask a couple on their wedding day if they love each other. Of course they do. I ask a couple on their wedding day if they will love each other, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, until death separates them. Love is not the basis for keeping these promises. Keeping these promises is the basis for keeping your love, which is why we have witnesses at weddings. Finally, principle number seven, and we have gone over 10 minutes, but you probably won't be surprised. Sam did wonderfully this morning at 29 minutes, just before he tells you. Principle number seven, remember what marriage is. Isn't it striking? And we'll turn to this again next week in the overview. Isn't it striking how many times throughout the Bible, God uses marriage as his example of providence, of his purposes. I mean, how do you get from the days in which the judges ruled to David? What's the mechanism in this ordinary story of country folk? A marriage. Marriage is the bridge That bad days to better days is built on. Remember what marriage points to. uh, We might add to Boaz his godly integrity, his determination. I want you. I love you. We'll see that in his dealing with the other redeemer in a moment. I want you as my bride. I am determined. And is that not what led to the Lord Jesus coming? I want you. I love you. I want you as my bride. I am determined. We are the bride of Christ, the church. Remember Genesis 2? We do our weddings the wrong way around. Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father. That's the way around in Genesis. It's men who should walk up the aisle. A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. A man left his father in heaven. And was united to his bride, the church. And they became one flesh. As we sing, Jesus left his father's throne above. So free, so infinite is grace. Emptied himself of all but love. And bled for Adam's helpless race. Jesus died for his bride, the church. For you and me. And that is what marriage Between a man and a woman in the Bible, displays. That is why it is so fundamental. So, there are seven principles from the book of Ruth about relationships, which I hope is helpful to a degree. Now, back to the story, and you'll see on the sheet uh, a very um, interesting set of headings the first Redeemer, the second Redeemer, the third Redeemer, and the final Redeemer. Uh, I owe that to a, a commentator called Barry Webb, who has written a brilliant book um, on Ruth. The story so far, Ruth 1, Naomi returns to the Lord from far away. The Lord brings her back. Ruth turns to the Lord for the first time. Chapter 2, Ruth experiences God's saving grace. Little glimpses of what it's like to experience the saving grace of God in Jesus. Naomi experiences God's restoring grace. She says at the end of the chapter, the Lord has not stopped showing his kindness. Chapter 3, we looked at last Sunday, all about godliness, the, the impact of godliness in flesh and blood believers. Just think of everything that I've said from Ruth about relationships. Would our society be better off or worse off if that is how we lived? I suspect many people in our society, deep down in their hearts, would say, yes, it would be better. Except we can't. The impact of godliness. And then into chapter 4, the heart of the book, or the, the summit of the book, It's all about redemption. One redeemer, two redeemer, three redeemer, four. Israel had redemption in her DNA. If you uh, sliced Israel, the people of God, like a stick of rock, it would read DNA in uh, redemption in the lettering inside the rock. For example, Psalm 78. They remembered that God was their rock, that God Most High was their redeemer. It's all about deliverance from Egypt in the Exodus. Isaiah 47, our Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, is his name. Isaiah 63, you, Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from old is your name. Redemption, God is their Redeemer, is right at the heart of their history. So, if you were uh, Boaz or, or, or Naomi or Elimelech, her husband, redemption is right at the heart of your history. How God brought them out of Egypt, how God is a redeeming God. And uh, God wanted them in his law to be redeemers to each other, and this is how it worked. Uh, When an Israelite family became poor and had to sell their land to survive, as was the case with Naomi here, the nearest male relative, the kinsman or guardian redeemer, had a responsibility to rescue them by buying it back. And also, if a man died leaving his widow without children, the situation Ruth and Naomi had found themselves in, their nearest male relative had to step in and marry his widow and enable her to have children so they could continue the family line and inherit the property. And that, in a sense, enshrining of redemption in the law was to reflect that redemption was at the heart of the character of God, and God wanted it worked out in the lives of individual families so do the first Redeemer, verses 1 to 8. We're not told his name. Names are very significant in the book of Ruth. He has no name. Boaz has already referred, chapter 3, verse 12, just as we were hearing the wedding bells ringing in chapter 3, suddenly there is a rival, a potential closer Redeemer. Now, what does Boaz do in chapter 4? He does what is right. He acts in accordance with God's word. One of the Bible commentators says here, and it's a kind of general point, I think he's right. These comments sound so great that you're not sure that they're as great as they sound. But I think this is right. Doing what is right rarely feels, or I would say always feels right at the time doing what is right is in obedience to revealed Scripture. He did what was right. Meanwhile, verse uh, 1, Boaz went up to the town gate, that's where business or legal transactions were done, and he sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Maybe that's another bit of God's providence. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went and sat down. Uh, Seating was the way that you made important decisions. Boaz then took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. And now he puts the first matter before the potential redeemer. Remember the, the, the law said you need to buy back the property. Will he buy it? Will he redeem it? Verse 3, then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I know. For no one has the right to do it except you. And I am next in line. He's so godly, Boaz. He sets it all out clearly. He's in love with Ruth. He wants to redeem her and Naomi. He wants the family line to continue. But he does what is right by God's word. A lesser man might have tried to bamboozle the rival redeemer. Boaz's heart must have been beating fast. He knows that if the answer is yes to this, that is bad news. Because there is more to this than the property. There is his bride. So, what will the potential redeemer, this closer relative, say? And uh, he says, I will redeem it. And remember, in God's purposes, we know the story of Ruth. I mean, Boaz is a flesh and blood believer. And you can imagine his heart beating, what are you going to do? I will redeem it. And Boaz's heart must have, surely not God. Yet Boaz continues to act in accordance with God's word. He is an honorable man. He puts the second matter marriage to Ruth. Then Boaz said, in the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Lots of the commentary suggest that Boaz has got this up his sleeve, and, and suddenly he plays his trump card. I don't think that's right. I think there's nothing other than godly integrity in what he says. Here's Barry Webb. Fortunately for Boaz, the first redeemer is not the romantic type. He is a money-wise, number-crunching, cool head, who looks on the whole situation as a strictly business term. What he's meaning is that if uh, this first redeemer takes on and buys back the property and then also marries Ruth, and with Ruth there comes Naomi, and if there are children, it means that he will lose out financially in the end. Now, Barry Webb is wonderful in his commentary, but he's wrong. It's too easy to say that this man was a money-wise, number-crunching, cool head, Because all the way through the book of Ruth, the decisions that people take... And this was wrong. He said, said, no, he shouldn't have said no. He shouldn't have counted the cost. But all the way through the book of Ruth, if we are really honest, we find ourselves plausibly persuaded that that is not an unreasonable decision. I will not do what is right by God. Because it will compromise in the end my family, my future, my inheritance, my line, my life, my comfort, so on and so forth. At this, verse 6, the guardian redeemer said, "Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it.' Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final,' One party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. Uh, this is where in the Bible commentaries you get a long explanation. Remember the ephah of barley? How big is the ephah of barley? Half a homer. How big is half a homer? Nobody really knows. And here we get a long explanation of how you seal the deal. And the best explanation I had, a bit of tongue-in-cheek in a commentary, we don't really know. And uh, in the modern world, we shake on it, they shoot on it. I think that's as good as any they took off their shoes and that to me is a great little yes it's inspired but it's just a factual detail reality stuff that they did buy it yourself and this nameless potential redeemer for whom the cost was too much said no I can understand why he did Wrong decisions are reasonable. Now, here's a bit of God's sovereignty to get your heads around. Was his decision to say no significant to God? Because God knew that Boaz was to be the redeemer. We cannot understand the overarching sovereignty of God without facing up to the real-time need to trust and obey when God presents us with an opportunity to do so. We can't square the circle. So if God lays on your heart and others encourage you and all the evidence is that you should do X for God and you say no and you watch somebody else doing what God had made it clear that you should do. Don't comfort yourself in that God really meant that person to do it in the first place. But equally, don't allow that to plague you with guilt. You see, in the Christian life, we move back and forward between the different chapters and lessons of Ruth. Now, the second redeemer, Boaz, verses 9 to 13, quickly, Boaz is rejoicing, we are rejoicing, Ruth is rejoicing, Naomi is rejoicing, even the elders, there's a little flicker of rejoicing. The whole town is rejoicing. Remember in chapter 1, the whole town was stirred because of Ruth and Naomi. Well, they're stirred again now at the thought of an imminent wedding. Boaz, verses 9 and 10, calls the elders and the people to witness that he will redeem the property and marry Ruth. The family is provided for. We are witnesses and our prayer. It's just like a marriage service. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez and Tamar Bo to Judah. Every one of these names takes you down a line of the Old Testament, and you know something special is happening. It is the prayer for a child, for a child of promise, they had no idea, though, no idea how this prayer would be answered. They died having no idea how this prayer would ultimately be answered. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Verse 13, when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Notice the Lord enabled her to conceive. Humanly, it couldn't have been taken for granted. Boaz was an older man. Ruth had had a childless first marriage. Could she have children? The Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Now, if that suggests to you another occasion many centuries later, when the Lord enabled a young woman who could not conceive because she was a virgin to conceive, and she gave birth to a baby boy in Bethlehem. If that is what your mind, that's right, but it's a flicker. It's not a straight line. See, all through the Bible, there are Shafts of light that point us to the Lord Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, let me encourage you to consider how it is that this book written so long before Jesus seems to speak of him. Because God is the inspired author. Boaz is the second redeemer. He is the guardian redeemer for Ruth and Naomi. He is a man of implacable character. The third redeemer, verses 14 to 16. Now, listen carefully to what is said. Verse 14, just follow that with me. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. We We think it's Boaz. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him, that is the Redeemer, birth. Boaz is not the Redeemer. He is our Redeemer. But the Redeemer here is the baby. Then Naomi took the child, the Redeemer, in her arms and cared for him. Now, that's a very powerful thing. She took the child in her arms and cared for him. She was to be his nurse. This is a wonderful illustration in the story of Ruth of how this woman went from emptiness to fullness. In a very visceral way, she held her boys in her arms. And she laid these boys in a grave. And her life was devastated. And in God's providence, once again, she held a baby in her arms. Now, that is not a promise that God will bring good things when bad things happen. Because behind all of that, what she is holding in her arms, and God can be wonderfully gracious to us and kind, is hope. Hope in a redeeming God. Hope in a Savior. The story for Naomi began with famine and funerals. Her story ends with harvest and redemption and the birth of a baby boy in Bethlehem. It is a beautiful picture of God's restoring grace in this woman's life. I mean, if you are not a Christian or before you were a Christian, The story of your life is famine of the Word of God and funerals. That's the story of humanity. And if you are a Christian, the story of your life now and the story of your life's end, harvest and redemption because of the birth of a baby boy in Bethlehem. And finally, the fourth Redeemer, or the Redeemer. You see, if you're if you're trying to take the Old Testament and find lines to Jesus, you know, you want to you want to get a Boaz and you want him to be Jesus, but He's not really because the baby is the Redeemer and not Him. And you get to the baby and you think, Well, we found him. But he's no more than just a light. Because it's the baby's. Well verse 17, the woman living there said, Naomi has a son. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Hezron, the father of Ram, Abinadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David. Matthew chapter 1, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will redeem his people from their sins. I love the uh, description of Simeon, that old man in the temple. Naomi is an old woman who held little Obed in her arms, who will give her life in her old age. That, That, of course, is... Iron, ironic, isn't it? You, how do you give life to someone who's old and dying unless you hold a redeemer in your arms? Simeon, the old man in the temple, sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. From my eyes as he held the baby Jesus, have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Your people is real. And of course, from the cradle to the cross, 1 Peter has all this in mind. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or without Defect. Now, as we finish, you can see how the Book of Ruth just casts its shadows and casts its lines forward to the Redeemer that is Jesus Christ. Now let me say this as we finish. In the end of the day, the gospel about redemption in Jesus Christ is not something that is merely for our heads to understand. The Old Testament is so helpful because it, it, it encourages us to, to think of Naomi holding this baby, her Redeemer. Think of the Lord Jesus at his birth. Now, we quickly go to the cross and rightly so and fall at his feet. But think of holding the baby Jesus. It's a rare thing for us to think on. You're all thinking, is that theologically appropriate? Think of holding the baby Jesus whom God has given you as your Redeemer. And think of that child dying on a cross, the price of that redemption. And faith in Jesus is what you know and faith in Jesus is what you are and feel and believe with all your being